Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Scott Mendelson of The Wrap. Uh, Scott has been on the show before. Uh, we we love talking box office with him. He's one of the, he knows he knows more about uh, day-to-day, week-to-week, weekend-to-weekend, franchise-to-franchise, box office stats off the top of his head than anybody else I know. So that's, that's saying something because I know a lot of numbers people uh, in this realm. But uh, Scott, thank you for being back on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It's absolutely a pleasure. So, Scott, here's uh, we were discussing this a little bit right before the show, but here here's my big question. If you are if you are a stats guy, if you're a numbers guy, what specific sort of number are you looking at uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume two or I'm sorry, Volume three? If you wanted to look at that movie's performance and say, all right, Marvel has a real problem here or alternately Marvel's fine. It's been a rough patch, not some great movies. This one's a little bit better. Things are okay. Like, what what specific numbers are you looking at? And what do you think, what are the benchmarks for, like, things are okay versus things are bad? Well, frustratingly enough for the discourse, it's sort of in the middle. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and Black Panther Wakanda Forever were the two installments coming up that everybody assumed would overperform because they were franchises that were very popular unto themselves. You know, you had a fan base that was into Marvel, that was into superheroes in the generic, and you also had people just really liked those franchises specifically. So there was a hope that they would significantly overperform. And at the very least, even if, you know, the post-Endgame slump was real, that those films were going to get sort of a shot in the arm. I would argue Wakanda Forever more or less did. The film did do $455 million domestic, and it did another, I think, eight fifty five worldwide without a penny from China. China contributed, you know, even in the good times of China, by the way, they were giving around 95 to $125 million for a given Marvel movie. So they weren't king, you know, they weren't deal kingmakers. You know, yes, Captain America Civil War made $190 million in China, but that was, you know, over under 10% of its $1.155 billion gross. Um, now, what the loss of China over the last three years, more or less, did was, you know, you, it put films that otherwise would have done very well, like Thor, Love and Thunder, on the defensive because they'd only did $750 million. You throw in $100 million from China, that's $850 million, maybe twenty five from Russia, that's eight seventy five, And, well, it made more than Thor Ragnarok. I guess it's a success. And even, you know, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness without China did 955, which was a huge upswing from the first Doctor Strange. But it was kind of sort of on the defensive because there was a narrative, and I don't necessarily agree with this narrative, that, oh, it's the, you know, it's another huge Marvel movie. It's coming after Spider-Man No Way Home. Surely it will do a billion dollars. It's like, with very few exceptions, a billion should never be the benchmark for any movie. Mm-hmm. You know, unless it's an Avatar sequel, mm-hmm. um, or maybe maybe the next Avengers film, a billion is never. You know, it, that used to be a rare and splendid thing, um, and I think we, we kind of normalized in a way that I think was harmful over for you know both the coverage of the films and the films themselves. Now, Guardians is going to do around seven hundred, give or take. Might do more, might do less. Um, and to be fair, even in good times, two thousand seventeen. You know, you had three very successful Marvel movies, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor, Ragnarok, and Spider-Man Homecoming, which co-starred Iron Man, by the way. All of those films still only made between 
eight fifty and eight hundred and seven eight hundred and eighty million dollars. So even then, again, a billion dollars was not the benchmark for success. I do think we may be in a situation where Marvel films at their best are performing on par with phase two pictures without with a lot less from China and Russia. And that is dwindling there. Now, the issue that Marvel is facing, I think, is the failures of Quantum Mania, which was a terrible film and performed terribly globally, um, and Eternals, which that film has its fans. I'm not one of them. Um, but at least it was, you know, it was playing in a slightly different sandbox. The problem with those films is, is the core hook of them was, hey, look, it's an MCU movie or come see how it connects to the big picture which is something that Marvel didn't used to do. They let the internet do that for them. You know, Easter eggs, you know, uh, you know, clues for the next movie, you know, continuity this, et cetera, et cetera. But the films were individually sold as movies unto themselves. You know, the hardcore fans may have shown up thinking that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was going to be this giant status quo altering event, but Marvel and Disney never, you know, came out and said that, and that was smart of them. Um that's why I was so shocked to see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania being sold as like the start of a new dynasty or whatever, because they were actually selling that as come see what this means to the big picture. And relatively speaking, nobody showed up. Um, if we are in a situation where the MCU as a brand is less valuable than it was a few years ago, that is a problem for the next batch of films coming out. The notion of a PG-13 blade that exists within the MCU isn't going to mean much if, relatively speaking, nobody cares about the MCU anymore. Uh, yet another Fantastic Four movie, you know, like the fourth attempt to make that new a franchise in, you know, 30 years. Oh, but it's in the MCU this time. Mm -hmm. If that's not as big of a hook as it might have been in 2016, 17, 18, then that film is now a question mark. For that matter, I'd say the same thing about the X-Men pictures. I think there's a, there's a presumption that, oh, you know, everything is fine because they'll eventually whip out the X-Men card and everything will be great. Well, unless the mere notion of the X-Men coexisting within the MCU is no longer a big deal unto itself. And that, to me, is the big danger for the brand going forward in that the, you know, the, the Marvel's biggest strength for a while was that it was a Marvel movie because it was trusted, it was popular, and it was considered sort of the the only game in town for this these kind of blockbuster thrills. And that's not the case anymore. Um, that doesn't mean that individual films might not break out. Theoretically, I think the next Avengers film will be big because it's the next Avengers film. And even people that don't care about the individual chapters do show up for those. But other than that, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 will do well, but we may have to look at that film's performance as the ceiling for upcoming solo MCU movies. Well, let me, I, so th specifically what I'm, what I'm, the, the question I'm kind of hinting at here, I'll, I'll just come out and ask it. What are we, what are we looking at for a second weekend drop here? Like what are, what do we think is, is optimistically good... we're looking for a 55% drop, give or take, which would be okay. what, about $55 million for the okay. second weekend. And, and that would be the best MCU drop in a long time because yes. here's here's because here's what I'm looking at when I look at the Marvel movies. It's not necessarily the total grosses, as you say. Uh, you know, Doctor Strange two grossed almost a billion dollars, nine hundred fifty yeah. million dollars. Like, did an, an enormous amount of money. Um, uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever did okay, did eight eight fifty eight eighty somewhere in there, but like not not 
I think a little less well than people had hoped. Um, and and Doctor, or, I'm sorry, uh, Ant Man and the Lost Condominia was kind of a disaster, as you mentioned. But the but the real issue here is the second weekend drops. Second weekend drop on uh, Doctor Strange two was almost seventy percent. Second weekend drop on Thor four almost seventy percent. Second weekend drop on Doc, um, uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever was I think sixty three percent or something like that, compared to the original, which I think was forty percent. Like, yes, had an amazing hold. Um, and then Ant Man and the Lost Quantumania, again seventy percent. So we're looking at these. We're looking at a situation in which these things are very front loaded, regardless of the quality or the reviews. They tend to be dropping pretty hard um, across the board. Yes and, and no. Okay. Because, and this sort of answered a question that was puzzling me for years, which is why did Captain America: Civil War, which had rave reviews and A from Cinema Score, everything going for it, why was that the most front loaded Marvel movie of all time up until very recently? And I think I got the answer when I looked at what happened with Doctor Strange 3, too, which is that the opening weekend was slightly exaggerated because you had the gotta see it right now Marvel nerds that showed up on opening weekend to an inflated degree. But then the rest of that film's performance, both Doctor Strange, for rest of that film's performance, respectively, was, okay, who just wants to see a Captain America 3? Who just wants to see a Doctor Strange 2? And... So, and even the big drops in July, what I've noticed, and this was the case with Thor, Love, and Thunder as well, which you have a big opening, you have a big drop, and that's for Ant-Man and the Wasp, that's for Spider-Man Homecoming, but then it levels out for the rest of the summer because it plays as a kid-friendly general audience consensus choice picture. And Spider-Man Homecoming and Thor, Love, and Thunder had the same advantage in that there were like no kids films for like four months in between that and whatever the next big superhero movie happened to be. In 2017, it was Thor Ragnarok. In 2022, it was uh, Black Adam. And so even that, it's a little more complicated than just it took a big drop. The, with the exception of the Avengers, with, and to a certain extent, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the big May kickoff films tend to drop farther and be more front-loaded than the July and November releases. And February, generally speaking, July and November. Um, for just that reason, you know, you also have more kids that are out of school in, in those periods. And you also have a situation where, especially in July, it's like if it, if something like Ant-Man or Thor, Love and Thunder or Spider-Man Homebang or Spider-Man Far From Home plays as a general audience, everyone can see this, everyone can enjoy this, nobody's going to feel left out. And, and then, you know, the legs will recover as they did with most Adam Sandler comedies in the late 90s, early 2000s. Those films would open with like $40 million, drop hard on weekend two, and then leg out for the next month because they were consensus picks, general audience, you know, easy picks for large groups going to the movies. Um, still true for Adam Sandler, by the way. This is, this is why he is still true for Adam Sandler, by yes. the way. This is why his movies do so well on, on Netflix. Yes. Um, so I'm less concerned about the size of the drop in weekend two then, frankly, I am about the size of the drop in weekends three and four. And I know that's kicking the can down a little bit, but statistically speaking, you know, I wouldn't panic yet if the movie drops a little harder on weekend two, especially because the reviews are good, the buzz is good, you know, A cinema score, et cetera, et cetera. There is some concern about that the film is very long and it's very melancholy and it has moments that don't exactly scream escapist entertainment. But, you know, we've said that before 
about everything from the Dark Knight to Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And kids are made of tougher stuff than we remember. Yeah. I do I do wonder uh I mean as I have two two young kids uh who I probably wouldn't have taken to this anyway but I definitely wouldn't uh given you know some of the some of some of the uh rocket raccoon scenes and yes. also the uh the defacing of a character near the end of the film I don't yeah, want to no spoilers it, so no spoilers there, but uh, it was it was definitely. But speaking of Dark Knight, I mean, it calls to mind the the kind of Two Face reveal, which again, yes. like that was that was a hard PG thirteen movie. That was a that was a that was a uh, pretty intense movie. I wonder if it will have that sort of. I, th- the reason I bring this up is because I do wonder if that is going to impact the general playability for uh, a longer stretch of time here, combined with the fact that you have you actually we finally have. A movie for families and for kids in Super Mario Brothers after, you know, a four month gap between that and Puss in Boots. Uh, you know, what, what do you see when you look at the performance of Super Mario Brothers? Well, it was kind of like a multi-generational nostalgic event, um, like it, like Beauty and the Beast, like Star Wars The Force Awakens, like Spider-Man No Way Home, where you have these properties that were just, you know, that everyone's a fan. And everyone discovered them at a different point in their lives through different outlets, like it, for example. You know, did you read the book as a kid? Did you read the book as an adult? Did you watch the miniseries as a kid? Did you watch the miniseries as an adult? Do you just want to see a 2.5-hour epic horror film about a killer clown? You know, that is why that film broke as big as it did in 2017. Um, Beauty and the Beast, you've got, you know, you have fans of the Disney cartoon that, that watched it at various stages of their lives. You have fans of Emma Watson from the Harry Potter movies. And sure, they're not going to show up with the bling ring, unfortunately. But the idea of Emma Watson as Belle, that's a, an actor plus character star power combo. Um, and with Super Mario Brothers, you had, you know, Nintendo the movie for all intents and purposes. My kids, you know, my firstborn, she knew what Mario and Luigi were before she was even old enough to play the games. So the pop culture saturation of the those Nintendo characters are, I would say, more so than Mickey Mouse. Because, yeah, everybody knows Mickey Mouse, but does anyone have a favorite Mickey Mouse movie? Does anyone go, oh, I can't wait? Unless you're really young and watching the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and then, you know, prayers for the parents. Um, Otherwise, you know, it's it's sort of a character that's sort of there without being particularly popular. Mario is, you know, Mario, Bowser, Princess, etc. They're popular characters. And they are played by actors that people like. You know, the Twitter likes to pretend that everybody hates Chris Pratt, but spoiler, they do not. They yeah. might not have any strong opinions about him, but they like him. They they recognize him, and while I don't think he's going to open some grim, dark legal drama on his own, blockbuster franchise pictures with him in the lead, I think, do better than those without. I think Dungeons and Dragons would have performed better if it was Chris Pratt than Chris Pine, oh. regardless of who you like better as an actor, or you know, better you know, on screen charisma, blah blah blah. But Chris Pine is not a draw. Most of them aren't draws. Let's be honest here. Um, unless you're DiCaprio or Bullock, it's with a lot of caveats. Yeah. Um, so I think Mario Brothers, it had the four, four month gap with no kids' films. It was incredibly bright. It was incredibly colorful. The trailer played like an earth shaking action film if you saw it in, you know, Dolby or IMAX. And even the negative reviews basically said, you'll get what you want if you want a Mario Brothers. It was that most of the bands include, I mean, I didn't review it, but even mine were like, I wanted a little more than just this. Um, 
And, you know, again, it's the craziness of trying to pull this into some ridiculous culture war discourse. It's like, A, the film got majority positive reviews. Even just going by Rotten Tomatoes, it got like 53% fresh or something, which yeah. means more than half the critics thought it was at least okay. Yeah. And B, well, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, you, the, the, the culture war stuff around here. I, I am, I am, I'm sympathetic to a point that you kind of hint at before the, this suggestion that Chris Pratt is some sort of, you know, uh, that he's hated or he's a, he's a cancer. I like, I this does not reflect in any of the uh, box office data really, or the, or the Nielsen's data. I mean, he, yeah, he was I a mean, huge hit on the terminal list. Whatever that show's called. I yeah. think it was, uh, the terminal list that did, you know, I know for, you know, I don't know the exact numbers because none of us do, but I think we can guess that a lot more people watch the terminal list than Chris Pine's We Own the Night. Yeah. Or whatever that okay. show's called. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> is it We Own the Night or We Are the Night? I can't remember. I yeah. can't. No, I, I, well, I can't remember. It doesn't, again, it doesn't this matter. is not about who's a better person. This is not about who's a better actor. This is about who can get people into theaters. And his Magnificent Seven remake with Denzel Washington did pretty well. Passengers made $300 million on a 90 budget despite being an entirely original property. Obviously, Jennifer Lawrence gets a huge chunk of credit for that, too. And I think, to a certain extent, she's a butts and seats draw in a way that I think we kind of took for granted because we were too busy whining about, oh, no, nobody showed up for Mother. Of course not. Mother's the movie you make after you've been a star because you want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's your reward for being a star. It's not proof that you are a draw. Well, do you think Jennifer Lawrence uh, is going to help revive the R-rated uh, rom-com so. here? God, I hope so. Um, because I, I think Sony hopes she will, and I'm I'm going to be optimistic because it is the kind of comedy that still did well back when comedies were still doing well, and this was a pre-COVID problem, as are most of the issues with theatrical. Um, she is a big star. She, you know, it's a fun, high concept pitch, and you know, in a way that yeah, Twitter may whine and, and moan about it, but it is selling sex appeal in a way that I don't think you get a lot from a lot of mainstream pictures for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, the name of the movie, by the way, is No Hard Feelings. The trailer yes. was came out a, a month or two ago. People were people were very interested and excited and kind of like, wait, do they they still make movies like this? They are trying this, this summer. Uh, I have an article about that that's in the editing pipeline. I'm hoping to drop it sometime this week, but whatever. Hollywood really is, by the way, read it at the Rap Pro when you get a chance. Um, or not. Please do. Um, and But no, I mean, this summer, Hollywood is really making an effort to release more live action comics. Uh, you've got Joyride, which I've seen is terrific. Um, you have No Heart Feelings. You have Theater Camp, which was a Sundance acquisition. You have Universal Strays, which is about talking a vulgar R-rated talking animal comedy, which just moved from June to August, which was great because there's a history of at least a decade of a big mainstream comedy breaking out in mid-August from Were the Millers in 2013, uh, Let's Be Cops in 2014, Sasha's Party in 2016, um, to a certain extent, The Hitman's Bodyguard in 2017, Crazy Rich Asians in 2018, and Universal's Good Boys, which had no stars, but had a hell of a concept that did the top 100 million worldwide in August of 2019. So there was hope right until COVID sort of kneecapped all the good choices the studios were making. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, do you, uh, what sort of COVID hangover are we dealing with here still? I, are you, are you of the opinion that the, the issue is slow is solely in terms of the, the Delta between, you know, box office in 2023 versus box office in 2019 
is the delta there a function of people not wanting to show up to theaters or they're not still just not being the same level of product, the same amount of movies. And I think this, this is, is a the real first debate. year since 2019 where we've had a regular amount of product. And what's been very frustrating is we've known since Godzilla v. Kong, or at worst, A Quiet Place 2, which opened exactly to the level it was tracking at when it was delayed 18, 14 months prior, that the tent poles were safe. People would show up for the blockbusters that they wanted to see. So there was no excuse to keep delaying this stuff. Um, you know, Furious 7, Venom 2, Spider-Man No Way Home, um, you know, the Batman, et cetera, et cetera. We, we knew this, but we still suffered, pardon quotes, through two years of undernourished theaters because studios were not providing a regular slate of theatrical releases. There were several reasons for that. One, you had a COVID post-production pipeline, understandably. I mean, you had a, a backlog of post-production because of COVID, and that's, I get that. Also, you know, for the for 2020 and 2021, you had Wall Street basically almost forcing studios to prioritize streaming at the expense of theatrical. So they had to do what Wall Street was telling them to do, and Wall Street was telling them that the only revenue or profits or numbers that mattered were streaming. Even though there was lots of evidence, even early 2020, that films that play well in theaters do better on streaming than those that just go straight to streaming, especially outside of the Netflix ecosystem. Um, on this point, actually, on this point, I want to I want to bring it back to Disney and Marvel real quick because one of the I I, I have a I, my my big theory on Marvel movies is that uh that they're especially front loaded in these these last few years because so much of the audience has shifted to home viewing. I I, I mean I know this just anecdotally. I have I have lots of anecdata on this yes. point. Uh, we people, all have evidence who, of evidence of evidence. Pe- people who uh, you know, I will be talking to, you know, just for my neighborhood, not not movie people at all, not, you know, in the industry, not press people, just like folks I talk to and they're like, Yeah, I went to see I went to see uh I don't know, I went I went to go see uh Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, but I didn't see Black Panther Wakanda Forever or Thor. I watched them at home and I'm glad I did because they weren't that good. Uh, and I, I feel like I can watch more of these things at home going forward again i i don't i don't i don't even know what you would how you would prove this statistically but i do get the sense that a a larger portion you you again you have that front-loaded the people who are uh marvel fanatics who are going to show up for everything regardless they don't want it they don't want to get hit with spoilers they want to they want to make sure they they see the thing fresh and, and and before everybody else um and then a that the possible repeat business from that cohort has dissipated somewhat because they are they're just like well if it's going to be on disney plus in six weeks i can wait i have disney plus anyway i'm that's fine um but also like there are people who just aren't going to see them in the theaters because of the disney plus factor i i do you think that this is a this is an issue at play here and yes and if it is i mean i like does disney even really care that much i think they are i think they are willing to take that trade shifting a certain amount of box office for steady monthly Revenue. I think that was absolutely a factor at play, especially for the animated films. Uh, and, you know, again, I don't want to say Bob Chapek evil, Bob Iger good, because if Iger had been there in 2020 when COVID began, I don't pretend that he would have, you know, not made some of the same decisions. Um, but Bob Chapek, again, under pressure to boost those subscription numbers at all costs, basically turned Pixar into a streaming brand. And they also 
even when they released a film, a Walt Disney animated picture like uh, Ray and the Last Dragon or Encanto or Strange World, it was basically treated as a glorified advertising campaign for the Disney Plus release. And the irony is they sent a bunch of very, very good pictures like Soul and Encanto and Turning Red either straight to streaming or in a very compromised theatrical release, but they went full party theatrical with Lightyear, which nobody wanted to see. And they should have known that nobody wanted to see because of the same thing with Solo, a Star Wars story, where you had a prequel origin story of a character that was basically the co-lead the first time around anyway, played by a different actor that had nothing to offer, new to bring to the table for people that weren't sold on that pitch alone. Um... But I do think there is evidence that Disney does care about theatrical windows. They want to get some of that theatrical revenue back because we do, you know, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania came out, is going to come out on Disney Plus over two months after its theatrical debut. Uh, Avatar came out, what, four and a half, five months ago? And we have no idea what's going to be on Disney Plus. Um, and they did, and they're doing a like hard VOD window as well. Yes, they, exactly. They have like a, and I think we've a- seen... Lots of evidence that the PVOD window, which is basically you pay 20, 25 bucks to rent it for a couple of days, does not cannibalize theatrical, that those two things can coexist. And that's a wonderful thing, because what we're finding out is we're getting these studio programmers that even before COVID would have been dead in the water theatrically, that can kind of justify themselves through PVOD revenue. So I am more optimistic about the studio programmer than I have been since 2016, because both because you're making money on PVOD, most of which, far more of which goes back to the studio than a you know, 50-50 ticket sale, and the theatrical release creates awareness and buzz and prestige for when that film comes onto Peacock or Disney Plus or HBO or Max or whatever, there is now almost more incentive to put those kind of films into theaters than there has been in almost a decade. Um, I want to... I want to I want to talk about theatrical as a ad campaign for streaming because that is essentially oh look I look at a movie like Air yes. a movie like Air that costs uh, you know Amazon reportedly paid 120 million dollars for the rights and to produce it um uh and they put it in theaters they put it gets a wide theatrical release it's on 3000 screens or whatever um 2500 however many it was on uh, and it only grosses 85 million worldwide to this point. Let's say it gets to a hundred million. Yes. Obviously, if, if you're, if your main, if your main goal is to generate revenue at the box office, this movie has failed, but that is not the main goal with this movie. The main goal with the theatrical release was to cover PNA, basically yes. the, the advertising costs to make it an exciting thing for when it is on prime video, which it is now, cause this is going Friday, up on Saturday. Uh, you know, it, it, this is the, the, the movies on, uh, on prime video, you've seen ads for it on TV. It's got Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, you know, it's a big event movie. Come watch it on prime video. And that gets folks there, right? Ideally. Yes. And I think we've seen, and again, you know, it's, it's insane as this sounds, that wasn't a COVID era, necessarily a COVID era strategy. I remember in two early 2019, Warner Brothers released a movie called Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. It starred the young woman from It, Sophie Ellis, I think. If I miss, if I got that Lilith, right, Lilith, Lily, yes. Um, and it was in AMC theaters for like two weeks before its VOD debut. And even then, I was like, "Oh, this could be the future," where you have these films that don't necessarily need to make a lot of money in theaters or make money in theaters at all. 
but they their their awareness and prestige is goosed by virtue of being in theaters for a couple of weeks. And I think we're going to see a lot of that, I hope. Um obviously Apple and Amazon whether they're you know whether it's truthful that they're going to each spend a billion dollars a year in theatrically inclined movies or not, I don't know. I mean I'll see it, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, but if that is the case, they are clearly not doing this so they can make back their money in global box office revenue. They are doing this because they know that if they want people to watch their movies on streaming, putting them in theaters gives a huge boost to viewership numbers. And, and this to me is hugely important, when you're dealing with movies that you're going to make anyways, the production budget's irrelevant because you already got to make it and release it on streaming for nothing. So the only extra money you're spending is marketing. Yeah. Hey, we should I, look. You can't dis, discount that entirely. It is expensive to market a movie. It's one of the reasons why the mid-budget yes. movie for adults no, it has is... disappeared. And you know, we can. That's a whole nother episode. That's a whole nother. Let me rephrase that. Podcast. The only extra expense is a not insignificant marketing spend. <laughs> yeah, because you're right. Um, it's not cheap at all. That's you're yeah. right. That's why we don't have the middle class movie in theaters as much as we used to. Um, but but I mean, you you look at a movie like. I mean, I the biggest the biggest box office successes of the last couple of years, to my mind, are movies that were destined for streaming um, and got got plucked out and put in theaters anyway. Uh, Smile being the big one, uh, but then also Evil Dead Rise. I mean, yes. these are two movies that didn't cost a ton of money to make. You know, as I think Evil Dead Rise cost 16, Smile cost 30 or something like that. Um, but they made a ton of money in theaters uh, and they're going to be on streaming here in, you know, the. Smile was on Paramount Plus 45 days later, 30 days later or whatever. Um, it still made a ton of money in theaters. That's that's just free cash. Evil Dead Rise, again, make, I don't know, it's at 120 it's million. It's going to top out around like 140 by the time it's done for a film so, that I mean, costs like about you're 15 just, million to make. Exactly. So I, I just, it, the, the, uh, the thing that has driven me craziest about the film industry over the last three years is this, the, 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 the way that everybody has kind of had to relearn that, oh, yeah, you could make money in movie theaters. Yeah. You can do that. I, I don't get it. I, I just, I don't understand it. I'm glad they've learned the lesson, I guess. I think, unfortunately, they were being, again, you know, not to be, not to hold up the studios as these innocent pawns, but I do think there was a huge investor-driven drive to prioritize streaming at the cost of everything else. And even if, you know, a given studio executive didn't necessarily agree with that or saw the forest for the trees, you know, if you don't do the thing that investors say you want, to, you should be doing and your stock price takes a hit in this environment, it's very hard to say, well, I'm sacrificing short-term gain for long-term. That's not the way the quarterly profits and that's not the way the media discourse works anymore, the extent that it ever did. Yeah, the, the discourse, it's always fun. Uh, all right, this is a question I've asked now uh, three or four guests so far. I'm curious to get your take on it. Uh, how disappointed am I going to be uh, uh, towards the end of July when uh, me, a Nolan head who's you know going to be camping out for Oppenheimer, uh, when that movie gets blown out of the water by Greta Gerwig's Barbie? Like, what are what are we looking at here? What what sort of box office? Uh, I think a sign of a healthy industry is that they is if they both can thrive. Um, you know, they both cost, I think, and again, I'm not, you know, I think they both cost around a hundred million. Um, and Barbie, I think it will be a hit for the record, but I am concerned that it's an example of a film that Twitter goes nuts for, but general audiences, you know, 
maybe they're interested, but they're not going gaga over it. And frankly, I think what Warner Brothers has to do now over the next couple of months, and they can, and I'm sure they will, is basically assure parents that this meta Barbie movie, Barbie movie is safe for their kids. I mean, the last trailer was funny, but you know, it basically ended on a, a very obvious double innu- innuendo. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's it's. I think they need to reassure audiences that yes, this film will be clever and funny and maybe fish out of water satirical, not unlike the Brady Bunch movie in 1995, but it won't be something that if you just want to bring your kids to a Barbie movie, you'll be okay. And again, that's not an artistic criticism. That's a commercial criticism. As for Oppenheimer, again, it cost about a hundred million. I know Universal is going to market the hell out of it because they want to show that they can. Assuming the movie works as popcorn entertainment, and most of Nolan movies do, that's sort of the you know the dumb secret of why is Nolan so popular? Because he remembers the fundamentals. <laughs> I mean, you go back and rewatch The Dark Knight, and above everything else, it is a gorgeously constructed, well acted, just incredibly intense action thriller. Everything else is is I don't want to say it's gravy because that's not fair, but you know it works as a movie first. And the only Nolan ripoffs that got that was Skyfall, which is a big reason why Skyfall made $1.1 billion four years later. Because whether or not that's your favorite James Bond film or not, and it has issues, especially on reflection, in the moment, it's a kick-ass action-adventure picture. Um, So I think Nolan has very sharp commercial instincts. And I think if he's going to spend $100 million on a movie about the guy that it, you know that helped invent the nuclear bomb, he's not going to make it a droll, slow art house walk in the park. I think there's going to be some commercial value there. Something to remember is that Interstellar opened below Big Hero Six in 2014, and then legged out to about 177 domestic. There's going to be 188 domestic from a 49 million dollar opening. Uh, Dunkirk opened with 50 million dollars on the same weekend that Girls Trip opened with 31 million dollars. So. A, there's room for both. B, I think both films will be relative. If they deliver, they will be relatively leggy because Oppenheimer will be the big adult film of the season. You know, going back to, you know, Road to Perdition in 2002, where you have this one midsummer movie that clicks with adults and legs out like a champ. Um, sometimes that's the help. Sometimes that's Forrest Gump. Sometimes it's Road to Perdition. Sometimes it's Dunkirk. Um, so I am cautiously optimistic about both films. I don't necessarily think that both films are guaranteed to be super duper mega smash hits, but they don't have to be. They don't have to launch franchises. They don't have to launch multimedia streaming spinoffs. You know, with Barbie, Zasloff might pretend it does, but if they show up, they show up. And if not, whatever. That's the smartest thing, by the way, that Lionsgate's been doing with the Hunger Games prequel. You know, whether or not the world needs another Hunger Games prequel or not, they have been absolutely dead silent on what this film means other than itself. It is not the beginning of a trilogy. It's not the beginning of a new franchise. There's not going to be a star spinoff. If the movie's a hit, maybe we'll get more. If not, oh well, no harm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, you know, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. I think there's anything folks should know about the state of the box office or the business or what's what's headed, what's uh, coming out? Something that I think is worth remembering is Jeremy Fuster, who is the box office guy at Forbes, he's also the labor guy, so he's got more important things to do right now. Um, he's sort of the point man on the, the WA strike right now. But anyway, something he mentioned, he's mentioned this a couple of times and it's worth repeating, 
the year should not be compared, 2023 should not be compared to 2019 because that was such a highfalutin Disney stacked year that we're probably never going to see grosses on that scale again. You had the last Avengers, the last Star Wars, the next Frozen, the last Toy Story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, two of the most popular animated films of the Katzenberg era, both getting remakes in like within like three months of each other, Lion King and Aladdin. Um, I think, and he thinks, and I agree with him, 2017 is a safe comparison. That was a very healthy year. You didn't have these weird bonkers, bananas, once in a generation smashes like Black Panther, Avengers, Endgame, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a solid, healthy year with the movies. Um, and how are we looking compared to 2017? I think so far so good. I think, and especially on a film by film basis, Creed overperformed, John Wick overperformed, um, Super Mario Brothers obviously overperformed. Um, and God help me, what came out between, and ironically, with the exception of Dungeons and Dragons, which always just cost too much money and was IP for the sake of IP. Um, which is what we were all saying three, four years ago when the project was first announced. It just Paramount had such a good run and the film looked so good that I think some of us drank the Kool-Aid a little bit. Mia culpa. A Scream 6 overperformed. Um, yeah. that other than Dungeons and Dragons, the only things that haven't overperformed so far are the comic book superhero movies. Yeah. Which I think is very yeah. telling. It's interesting. It is interesting. I mean, again, this gets back to my, I do think we are, like, I'll just say it. I think we are in a kind of comic book fatigue type moment. Look at Shazam. Two, which which has did worse than Morbius. Yes, you believe it? Be worse than better movie. Worse than Morbius. <laughs> uh, and I, I like every time I see a trailer or an image of uh, the Flash movie, which is being marketed very heavily as a Batman movie. Um, I look at that and I think, boy, I know Warner Brothers really believes in this movie. They have to, given you know yeah. some of the surrounding stuff on this. They they must really believe in it to be pushing it as hard as they are. Making it the their show they showed the whole thing at CinemaCon. They've they've got you know it looks Well, I've not seen it. Great. Uh I was not a fan. There were lots oh, of yeah. people that loved it. Okay. Jeremy he was he we, we were working together that week, and I think his thoughts, basically seven out of ten, it's fine, are going to be the general audience consensus. But I am not as high, even before I saw it, I'm not as high commercially on that film's prospects as I think a lot of other people are. That doesn't mean I think it's going to flop. I think they're going to be, you know, if it does Doctor Strange Thor 4 numbers, that would be fantastic. But oh, I, well, I mean, I think that'd be a huge hit. Yeah, yeah. If Flash does $800 million, if a Flash movie does $800 million, I take back everything I've said about comic book fatigue. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, well, no, it's, it's I, not I think, real. I, and but yes, I, I, I agree with you. But I think films like that, and I, I think there's a lot of movies coming out this summer that everyone thinks are going to make a billion dollars just because now everyone thinks everything makes a billion dollars that aren't remotely guaranteed. That includes Indiana Jones 5. That includes uh, Fast, Fast X. Fast 10. Because, you know, China isn't going to deliver as much as they have the last, you know, in parts uh, uh, 7 and 8. They did not like 9 any more than we did. And yeah. for the record, it had nothing to do with John Cena making a comment about uh, 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 Thailand. Is it Thailand? Thailand. Taiwan. Sorry, I'm an yep. idiot. Um, you know, the film was dropping on opening night because they just didn't like it. It was very continuity heavy. It was very mythology driven. It was very, you know, franchise specific in a way that, you know, sort of cart before the horse kind of filmmaking that, you know, Hollywood, you know, American audiences aren't crazy about either. Um, yeah. But I hope this one is better. It looks better just because it looked like fun. And Jason Mola seems to be having the time of his life. Um, 
but I do think that is one that, you know, it, it's, it's, it may not perform that much better than F9. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they'll just take a loan from Nintendo. They'll be fine. <laughs> um, I also right. think that Mario's going to be the biggest gross movie of the year, domestically and worldwide. I don't see anything coming in the horizon that's going to beat it. Um, I think the Meg has the potential to be massive if it plays anything like a Chinese blockbuster in China because it is a co-production between Hollywood and China, and it stars Wu Jing, who is one of top, uh, China's biggest movie stars. Um, I know it's a cliche to say this person is, this country's Tom Cruise, but if I were to make that statement, it would be Wu Jing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the film, you know, he was in The Wandering Earth, The Wandering Earth 2, Battle of Lake Jing Chin, Battle of Lake Jing Chin 2, a Wolf Warrior 2, all of which made a good, you know, anywhere from 600 to 900 million dollars. Just in China, right? And right. if that film plays like a Fast and Furious movie in China, which means you know three fifty four hundred million dollars, and does pretty well everywhere else, it could be one of the biggest movies of the summer globally just by default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meg two. I, it's it looks on, great, it's, by it, the way. <laughs> I, well, I mean, it, it it had a pretty fun trailer. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it that. And, yeah, it's the it cheeky that. marketing that worked so well for the first film five years ago. Yeah. Uh, all right, Scott, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Scott Mendelson of The Wrap. Go uh, sign up at The Wrap Pro. Uh, you, you, you won't regret it. It's a, it's a, it's a good site. And uh, I uh, will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.